So for the record, we're, uh, we're reading through Jesus uh, and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman as our Lenten book. We always like to have like a hyper-focus on Jesus through the sermons on Lent in particular. And Howard Thurman's book, Jesus for the Disinherited, is a classic. Just for the record, I want to say that this, this book is one of the few books that really helped turn my understanding and reading of the Bible um, it was re- recommended to me by Marquise Williams, who was part of a book group uh, that we had. And I think with the first year we worked together, uh, Marquise has since moved to Detroit, but he loved this book, and we read it together, and it was uh, so helpful for me. I, I think for years, uh, my reading of the Bible was mainly informed by interpreters uh, who were white men with plenty of social status. Um, and they, you know, they were good scholars, but they were not as tuned in to certain things because of, of their station. And they sometimes missed the forest for the trees, especially when it comes to uh, the core perspective of the Bible. This book by Howard Thurman is as humbling a book as I've actually ever read. Uh, the point of the book is so obvious, and yet it's been so obscured by layer upon layer of interpretive tradition. And the point is simply that the Bible was written by, for, and to the disinherited. This is, the, this is in a sense, the, the primary, the key lens for making sense of the Bible. If you think of St. Paul and Romans saying, live in harmony with each other, don't be uh, haughty, but associate with the lowly, to, to associate with someone is to understand their point of view and the point of view of the Bible is the point of view of the disinherited. Now a note on that term that uh, Thurman loves, the, the disinherited. Jesus addressed, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the famous Sermon on the Mount uh, to the disinherited, to the poor, to the uh, mourning. Uh, in, the, in the Beatitudes, which open the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the meek, or the lowly is a better translation, who will inherit the earth. This was a promise to those who had no other inheritance. Um, wealth, is, especially in that era, as in ours, was passed on from one generation to the other. The only hope you ever had of having any wealth was being part of a wealthy family. If you think of our own American experience, right? American slaves worked for no pay. Hello, that's what it means to be a slave. Uh, Had nothing to pass on to their heirs. The slaveholders accrued wealth by the slave labor, passed that wealth on to their heirs, plus the wealth that was generated in this social class was mainly flowed among other white people, so even people who weren't slaveholders benefited from that circulating wealth, money doesn't die, it just gets passed on, and so we're still living with the vestiges of that injustice in the distribution of wealth to this very day. So inherit, the disinherited is a really uh, powerful term that Thurman uses. Uh, inheritance is very close to the idea of, uh, of privilege. So privilege is benefits we enjoy due to our station in life. Uh, uh, privileges are passed on in a system, for example, that favors men over women or white people over people of color or straight people over gay or cisgendered over transgendered. Uh, 
with inheritance, like if you've ever received an inheritance or knew that you were getting an inheritance, we tend to assume that we're, we're like, we're owed our inheritance. That's the uh, story of the prodigal son. Give me my inheritance, the young son said to his father. Like, it's mine. I want it now. But actually, if it's an inheritance, it's like we don't earn a dime of it. And it's the very same thing with privilege. Uh, those mostly hidden to us benefits that come our way due to our race or our gender, our sexuality, or whatever our status may be. So the incarnation, Thurman says, is God appearing in disinherited human flesh. And that's really important. Jesus was born a, a peasant Israelite under Roman occupation with no access to the trickle-down power of Rome that came to some of his countrymen. He, he also suffered, kind of a little-known fact, he suffered from the stigma of masmer status. That's the term for bastard, which at that time was a great shame. Anyone who didn't know who their father was was a masmer, a person of unknown patrimony, and that was a stigma that Je Jesus carried uh, his entire life. Um, like most of us, uh, though, Jesus had some privilege relative to some others. He was a male, not a female. Uh, he was a Jew, not a Samaritan from our reading in John 4 today. But, but that was about it. So Howard Thurman says that the disinherited are affected by three forms of psychic oppression. Uh, the inner world of the disinherited is subjugated by fear, uh, by deception, the need to deceive in order to survive, and by hate. So he's talking about these issues uh, from the perspective of the disinherited fear, deception, and hate. So today we're going to cover deception. Um, the classic text in the Sermon on the Mount uh, on deception is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the evil one. But remember, Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the disinherited, the poor, the persecuted, and the mourning. This is the, actually the only other place we have this text in the Bible is in the letter of James, uh, probably the brother of Jesus. And in chapter 5, there's a warning to the oppressed, and then there's a counsel to those who are oppressed, and the let your yes be yes and your no be no is in that, that counsel to the oppressed. So the context is really important to understand this verse. It's not just like a Hallmark card virtue verse. This is like uh, words to the disinherited to deal with their situation. Thurman says that the relationship between the strong and the weak, the people on the top and the people on the bottom, that relationship is always marked in any system, in any society, it's marked by deception. And the deception is always going both ways. Uh, whenever one group of people has entrenched power over another group of people, those on the short end are forced to resort to deception in order to survive, right? I mean, we can see that. That's understandable. Um, you know, where it's most, most obvious maybe is kids. I mean, kids will deceive their parents 
to assert their independence because they're in a weak power position relative to their parents and they like to close that gap by hiding things from their parents or deceiving their parents like my daughter Amy when she was a she was a teenager. She's uh, well grown now, so it's fine for me to tell this story. Uh, she, you know, she was convinced, and she was probably right that, like, we were too strict on bedtime and curfews and all that sort of thing. And so she closed that gap by waiting until we were asleep, and then she would sneak out at night and she'd just go do what she wanted with whomever she wanted. She did that for months before we found out. Every night, oh my lord, that was an encounter when I. Saw her coming back in at five in the morning. Oh my Jesus, sweet baby Jesus, help me, Lord. Um, but deception goes both ways. Any oppressive system depends on deception to 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 function, right? I mean, the benefactors of the oppressive system rarely acknowledge the injustice of the system. Um, in, in church, right? In church history, uh, ch the church aping society, the older teaching of the church, teaching by men, for men, said that women were inferior to men. That was the actual orthodox teaching of the church that was, you know, rooted in the Bible, the plain meaning of the Bible is that women were actually inferior to men. Well, when that would no longer play, the church got more subtle about it, right? Have you ever heard women are equal in the eyes of God? They're equal in dignity, but can't be pastors. Um, and it has nothing to do with equality. Okay. Or, or you know, let's, let's keep minorities from voting by passing photo ID laws, knowing they have a harder time getting photo IDs. You know, they can't afford to drive in the same proportions. That's not discrimination. Let's call it the Election Integrity Protection Act. It's like, okay. So deception is always part of the system on, on the part of those who are on the top, and it's also a coping mechanism for those who are on the bottom. So Jesus called out uh, the deceptive practices of the powerful. Uh, there's actually no time for examples, but they are, they are legion, the deception of the, of the powerful. But he also spoke to the disinherited about the corrosive power of deception on their own souls. Uh, his typically Jesus straight up talk version, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the evil one, not to put too fine a point on it. So I think we have to be careful here because Jesus fully understood that vulnerable people pay a heavy price for too much honesty with their oppressors. So it's, it's really not for the powerful to say this to the vulnerable. Uh, Jesus said this as one of the vulnerable to his peers who are also vulnerable. We know that truth-telling, when it's practiced by someone with less power, takes more courage. Uh, so it's harder for you to tell your boss a hard truth than for your boss to tell you a hard truth because there's a power difference. But we also know that truth-telling by the less powerful is always part of the overthrow of the yoke of oppression. Without truth-telling by the le less powerful, 
there isn't the yoke being thrown off throughout history. Uh, we see this in our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So like, what, 50 years ago, 67, the price for honesty if you were a sexual minority was just ghastly. Um, many gay and trans people just stayed in total hiding their whole lives. But a few brave souls started coming out the term. That meant moving into the light of the truth about themselves with some others. And then bolstered by the courage of those original few, others gradually followed suit. And it was like a little trickle that turned into a stream, turning into a river. More people began to recognize that the rap on LGBTQ people were a bunch of scurrilous lies. The walls of Jericho started falling down and they were thick walls and they're still falling. So we're really still historically in the early stages of that courageous witness. Now, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It takes time and courage to come out to yourself and to others and it requires wisdom. You know, from, from my perch as a pastor in a system that was oppressive on this issue, uh, I've seen how being in a system like that um, oppresses certain group, that oppresses certain groups, puts a muzzle on your own honesty and it breeds deception in you inevitably. It just does. I mean, I can't tell you how this, this worked on my own life for many years. I can't tell you how many pastors I know who have shared with me their three-quarter sympathy for full inclusion. You know, they go up to the line of changing their minds, but they always stay on the safe side of the Rubicon and are endlessly double-minded telling themselves, well, I, I still haven't resolved this. And sometimes those are honest, sincere, like interpretive questions that they're, str they're struggling with. But there's another factor at work because the pun there's punishment in the system for truth-telling and that keeps you from crossing the Rubicon. And the more perverse part is it keeps you from coming out to yourself. It keeps you from putting into words fleeting thoughts that pass through your mind and then you're frightened by your own thoughts and so you don't even come out to yourself when you're in a system like that. I know what that feels like being a pastor in the evangelical world for many years. You know, John West, who came here, uh, what was it, about a month ago, um, he, he was such a pastor. Um, the Spirit was working him on him on this issue, but he kept largely quiet until, guess what? He was preparing a sermon on this text. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's literally writing out the sermon notes and saying, we should be a community of those willing to reveal things about ourselves that are hard to reveal. We want to create that kind of atmosphere in the church. And as he's like typing out the notes, the Spirit kind of nudges him like, do you believe that, John? And John wisely said in his internal dialogue something like, I know the correct answer is yes, 
But since you're asking, I'm guessing you think I'm holding back, not practicing what I'm preaching here, and that's when it just like came to him. It was the weekend of the Supreme Court uh, marriage equality decision. John supported the decision privately, and he knew that the Spirit was like inviting him just to share, just to disclose his own point of view on that decision in the church because he wanted the church to be a place where you could share hard truths with, with others. So he gulped and in the sermon he disclosed his personal views on the matter. That was upsetting to enough people that he lost his church. But he gained his soul. He gained something about his own integrity in that move. So when we're in a system that punishes us for telling the truth about ourselves, the effect can be corrosive on us. And this is what Jesus is concerned with here. Because in the process of hiding the truth from others, we sometimes end up deceiving ourselves too. And that is corrosive. I want to stress again, you know, if you are in a vulnerable position on this, it's not for me or anyone else to tell you how or when or to whom to tell any kind of risky truth, whatever it is. Uh, Jesus speaks personal truth personally. He doesn't speak like universal truth abstractly. He speaks personal truth personally. That's like the whole advantage of having a relationship with Jesus. He can speak personal truth personally. So that's for Jesus to whisper to us when he's ready and we're ready and the time is right. You know, those who wrote the New Testament uh, didn't willy-nilly say stuff that could get them killed. Um, they said, for example, Jesus is Lord. But they didn't add the implied, and Caesar is not. When you said Jesus is Lord in the context of the Roman Empire, the implication was, and Caesar is not. But the Christians didn't add that implication. They just left it at Jesus is Lord. The implication was true, but making it explicit could have gotten you killed pretty quickly. The book of Revelation is a whole book of the Bible that is written in this kind of insider code and it's talking about the Roman Empire uh, which was like the oppressive power of the day. The insiders, the followers of Jesus knew what the code was but it wasn't written in a way that would uh, uh, you know, make you vulnerable to the charge of open sedition. What I can be confident to say is this. God is setting captives free and he's doing that with us together as a community. He's, he's setting captives free with his humanity, you know, that he's raising up as a child into maturity. And the more we together uh, walk together toward the light in our truth-telling, the more freedom will come to us, to more people. Uh, we do want to be the kind of place where we can tell the truth we know, especially about ourselves, when we're ready to tell it as the Spirit leads us. So that reading from John 4 that Oceana read for our reading this morning, uh, we had her just read uh, a part of it because it's a really long 
reading that um, the liturgical churches uh, are going overtime today because they're all reading uh, John uh, 4 and it's almost like the entire chapter is quite a long interaction between longest interaction I think but Jesus and between Jesus and another human being in all of the Bible is uh, the Samaritan woman at the well um, but you, you may know the story Jesus uh, strikes up a conversation with a Samaritan woman outside a Samaritan town, Sakar is the name of the town, on his way to Jerusalem, he's passing through Samaria. Uh, he's supposed to be too good to talk to this woman. Uh, the disciples were scandalized later when they came back and saw him talking with her. Uh, and Jesus, in the interaction, uh, starts by asking her for uh, some water. So he puts himself in a lower position. He was actually in a higher position relative to this woman. You know, the, the Jews were, were those who worshipped in the temple centered in Jerusalem and the Samaritans were like half-Jews who worshipped in a different temple centered in Samaria and they weren't recognized as true Jews by the, by the, by the you know, real Israelite Jews who focused their worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So it'd be kind of like uh, a Mormon walking into a convention of Southern Baptist pastors, you know, and be like, oh, well, you know, you're like halfway there, but you don't really have the whole thing, and we're extra irritated by you because you kind of use all our language, but you mean something else, it seems like. There was that kind of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, and Jesus was on the kind of like the higher end of that power equation. So it's interesting, he begins the conversation by asking for a glass of water, which puts him in the position of need. And she has some power to satisfy his need for water. This woman, it turns out, is like a real theologian. She's a deep thinker about God. And so Jesus goes into deep thinking kind of mode. You caught some of that in the reading. Uh, and he ends up in the conversation telling her some real like secrets of the kingdom of God that he hadn't even disclosed to his own disciples by that time. And then we have this exchange right here. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And I, I picture Jesus like not knowing beforehand uh, what her situation was. But as she responded, I have no husband there was something in her tone of voice or there's something in the way she looked or, and he had sort of a, an intuitive understanding that wasn't entirely natural, we would say. And he said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. I, I, I picture him being kind of whimsical here, being kind of a, a little bit half cute with her. For you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. And, and I, I see her like smiling back at him. Like they know what's going on here in this exchange. And I think what Jesus is doing is he, he's letting this woman know that he already knows something that she would otherwise hide from him because he's in a power position over her. She was in the habit of hiding this from any holy person because she would anticipate being punished for revealing this information. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be safe for her to do that. But his brand of holiness is not oppressive power holiness. 
and her truth is safe with him. Uh, she is safe with him. Later, she runs back to the town and she says, come get, see a guy who told me everything I ever did. He didn't tell her everything he ever did, but she felt completely known by him and she felt accepted in the knowing so that she was exciting, excited to get any of her friends so that they could come and be known in the same way by this incredible rabbi because it was, it was like a wonderful way to be known. It was incredibly good news to be known that way and yet without any punishment, without any fear, being fully accepted. This, I think, this interaction between Jesus and this woman at the well, it contains like the germ or the seed. It's the beginning. Maybe it's even the foundation of truth-telling. Even when we can't be honest with ourselves or others, we can be honest with God, meaning this God, the, the Jesus vision of God, the God revealed by this Messiah that this woman met at this well. We can tell him anything without fear of retribution. And that's the beginning of our being honest with ourselves, which is the beginning of our honest being honest with others. He won't blab it to others. He won't remind us later to score gotcha points. Don't you love that? You know, in a moment of vulnerability, you share something with someone, they're like, oh, yeah, no judgment. And then like six months later, they bring it up, you know, when you're in a little dispute, and you know, it's a gotcha point, and you're like, ooh, that was a mistake. No, none of that. Somehow, when we say it, these hard truths to Jesus, it's like the shame and the fear that kept it locked in that box inside of us just dissipates like a mold in the sunshine. So my big ask, one of our um, you know, three prayer disciplines for Lent that we practice here is, uh, is praying for our six, picking six people that aren't like in, on, in our inner circle, uh, you know, barista at Starbucks or someone you interact with maybe through the week but you don't really know them picking six, up to six people and praying for them. I've only got three so far for I'm really behind the curve, but I have good three, um, and I'm giving them good prayer. Um, uh, so, but pray for your up to six is one practice. Uh, we've got a, our big ask. We're praying for joy in the midst of, of, uh, of trial and difficulty. We've got a prayer. We'll pray a little bit later for that together. But then the, the big one, the hard one, is called my big ask. And... Um, my big ask, my person, it's supposed to be personal. It's not world peace, things like that. It's personal, something that you really want or you really need. My big ask is getting through some anger that I've had trouble accessing about some past events. Thanks to the help of my therapist. I understand this, you know. You know, like when you're talking to your therapist and you say, well, he's like, uh, uh, yeah, you don't seem very angry about that. You're just reporting it like, you know, like it's a normal thing. And I said, well, I don't know. My dad was, you know, had PTSD. He was chronically, he was chronically, you know, uh, depressed and irritable all the time. I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. I just don't, I can't, I want to be happy. I can't picture being happy and angry at the same time. I say that and I go, uh... Could I pull that back? 
That doesn't sound very healthy. I bet you're not thinking that's the best thing in the world to say. Oh, I think a normal person would think you can be happy and angry at the same time. Maybe I've got an issue. I hate talking to these like therapists. They just listen to you. They don't say anything. You say these stupid things and you realize how stupid they are as soon as you say them and then they just keep smiling, you know? So my big ask is, okay, God, let me get through, let me go into this anger, let me go through it and beyond it, you know? So, um, this is my pray. You know, actually just praying it every day has been helpful. It's like making me less like wound up about my own anger. Like, oh, what's going to happen when I really get anger and angry? And, you know, is, is the world going to explode? Am I going to explode? It's like every day I just ask and I'm like, okay, I'm getting kind of used to this idea. So um, recently I had a glass of wine and uh, Julia was at her vestry meeting, had a little peace and quiet in the house there, a little time. I listened to some music. I got Alexa going here. I got, you know, I got some good music going. I could just repeat Alexa. and uh, some, uh, She was kind of getting my feelings going in the right direction there with the music. I got out my angry psalm. I got out Psalm 7. Ooh, that's a doozy, man. I love, I read, I read the anger psalm out loud and I kind of started to own it. And, and then I told my anger to Jesus. I actually got down to telling my anger to Jesus. I used my bad words with Jesus. You know, I used all my bad words. I was a very bad boy with Jesus in my language. It was, oh, you'd been very proud of me. Uh, I really, uh, for me, I really let her rip. Um, and you know, that, that wasn't half bad. Like I survived, Jesus survived. It led to some really unexpected uh, sweetness. It lasted for a, a good while, a little too personal to share. Um, I'm not done yet, but I think I'm off to a pretty good start. I can't wait to go to my therapist and say, guess what happened, you know? <laughs> guess what happened? I think I made some progress. I'm just, I'm just not so anxious, so ashamed, so fearful about my anger, and I'm not alone with it anymore. That's the most powerful thing. I don't feel like I'm alone with it anymore. Things always get heavier and meaner and harder when we're alone with them. So oppression, I mean, every, every world system is a system of oppression. There's no society. There's, there's probably no family. There's no context that doesn't have some like disorder in, in the way the power works. But oppression is always a system that consciously or unconsciously censors its subjects. It censors people. You know, if you're a woman, you know that being a woman, you are penalized for being normally angry at work. I mean, the guys can get angry in a certain way and they're like, wow, they're tough dudes. They're like, don't mess with them. I, I respect that, you know, a force to contend with. You get angry like that at work and, boy, you get called all sorts of names and you're, you know, you're, you must, must be that time of the month and all that kind of boo-honky comes your way. That's part of an oppressive system. Or, oh, that skit at the, what was that, at the uh, couple uh, years, uh, two years before Obama was done at the, at the uh, you know, that funny skit, whatever they do. Uh, Luther, Obama's anger translator. You remember that? Oh, my Lord. Oh, you know, Obama is an African-American man. He has to be like totally, 
you know, restrained. He can like smile a little bit when he's angry. That's as, as far as he can go without being penalized by the culture. And he's grown up with this. He knows this. And so he, he, he's very restrained in his communication, very guarded and, and calm. And uh, Jordan Peele gets up next to him and translates his restrained kind of stuff <laughs> in like real normal human anger. It's hilarious. But it was, uh, it's so that's the way it works. Uh, the, the truths that we're most likely to hide from others, even ourselves, are the truths about ourselves, right? That's, that's, where, it all, that's where it all begins. It's the truth about ourselves that we're not acknowledging. So, for our, we like to end uh, sermons with a little quiet reflection time. And I wanted to just offer a little meditation um, what you might do to uh, participate in this is just um, close your eyes if that is easier for you to relax and settle down um, and as you're breathing just pay attention to your breathing and then I want to offer a little meditation on the idea of having a completely safe and private space with God which is a, a real important part of the teaching of Jesus on prayer having a completely safe and private space with God. So why don't we, we'll take a few minutes with this. Just take maybe 30 seconds to, again, close your eyes, get comfortable, and just focus on your breathing, and then I'll offer some words of meditation for you to listen to. So the, the background to this is that the Romans who were the occupation force in Jesus' homeland looked with suspicion on private prayer. The Roman philosophers, they didn't, they didn't like this idea of private prayer. Prayer was like a civic thing. It was a more public thing. You did it with others, like reciting the Pledge of Allegiance sort of thing. But Jesus knowing that the Romans, who were the occupation power, didn't like private prayer, he emphasized the complete privacy in prayer. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You could, you could use mother if father doesn't resonate with you or parent. The inner room in the Palestinian home, peasant homes, was like where they, they stored the, the food goods. And it was the only room that was really closed. Everything else was open and everyone was in every other room all the time. There were no doors. Just in that inner room. So it was, you might think of it like a, like a bathroom for a mother with toddlers. The only place you can get away sometimes is the bathroom. That's what the inner room was like. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret 
will reward you. Notice that the whole, the whole space is surrounded by reward. There's nothing to fear in this inner room with this father, with this mother, with this parent, this figure who sees and hears you in secret. So I'm going to just invite you to picture yourself in a pleasant and completely private space. Use your imagination to just picture yourself in a really pleasant and completely private space. Could be a room that you imagine in your mind. Could be a private outdoor space. It's all to yourself though. Just let your imagination kind of fill out the details of that that place. If it's a room, you like a fireplace, put a fireplace in there. Candle, burning, whatever you like. Just picture yourself in a pleasant, completely private space. And now I want to just invite you to imagine that God is with you in the form of a friend or another person you're completely comfortable with. You don't have to like picture him as God. Just picture him as someone that you're completely comfortable with. You could say anything. You could be anything in the presence of this person. You know that whatever you say is held in strictest confidence. You have no concerns about being judged. You're completely at ease with this person in this place. And just sit with that for a, for a little while longer. You may want to say something, you may not. But just take in that scene. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us what prayer is meant to be. be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen.